This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Hip-hop is being celebrated this month in honor of its 50th anniversary. My guests are two music journalists who love hip-hop, cover it for NPR Music, have written extensively about it for most of their adult lives, and grew up with it. But they're also not afraid to call out hip-hop when they see misogyny, homophobia, or transphobia. Rodney Carmichael and Sidney Madden host the NPR hip-hop podcast, Louder Than a Riot. Here's how they describe this season. And from NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. Where we confront the double standard that's become the standard. On every episode this season, we tackle one unwritten rule of hip-hop that affects the most marginalized among us and holds the entire culture back. And one that a new generation of rap refuses to stand for. This season, they're highlighting the stories of female, gay, and queer rappers who were daring enough to be themselves, in spite of all the pressure to conform to the standards set by the straight, often hyper-masculine men who have dominated rap for most of its history. In the first season, Louder Than a Riot investigated the connection between hip-hop and mass incarceration, or as they put it, the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. Unfortunately, Louder Than a Riot was one of the shows NPR eliminated during its recent round of budget cuts, so the current second season is also the final one. Sydney Madden, Rodney Carmichael, welcome to Fresh Air. I've really enjoyed your podcast, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm sorry that the show was canceled, but at least you got two really good seasons out of it. Oh, thanks so much, Terry. We're definitely glad to be here. Appreciate even knowing you've been listening, so that's great. I know. We're definitely honored to be here, and we're proud of the two seasons that got us here. So thank you so much. What's the hip-hop track that first got you really excited about hip-hop? Oh, man. (laughs) I have a standard answer to that. It's a a track that's still probably celebrated today. You you probably heard it a lot this month if you were tuned in to Hip-Hop 50 Celebrations. It's not the first hip-hop song I ever heard. But it's the first song that showed me that hip hop, you know, could be more than just partying, for instance, mm-hmm. you know. And it's the song by uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, The Message. I love this track so much. It's so well written. And of course, um, Melly Mel is doing the rapping, but Duke Booty actually wrote the Duke lyric. Duke Booty, that's right. And, and it's so good because it shows everything that's going on outside. That making the rapper wonder how he keeps from going under, and um, it it shows both like anger, social commentary, and vulnerability at the same time, exactly. because you know he's he's trying to prevent himself from going under and saying like don't push me because I'm close to the edge. So um, it's just so well done, and the rapping is so good on it. And you know, Terry, if I can say, like, that's still my favorite kind of rap song. Like, that's a whole lane of rap that, you know, continues. Like, if you look at trap, trap music is very much that lane. Quote, unquote, gangster rap in the 90s was very much that lane. You know, all all of my favorite rappers, a lot of them talked about struggle and overcoming Mm -hmm. and, you know, insurmountable Mm -hmm. odds 
all of that stuff, you know. That's hip-hop at its finest, you know. Yeah. I'm really glad you chose this. Let's hear a little bit of it. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Glass everywhere, people pissing on the stage. You know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out. I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back, junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far. Cause a man with the touch truck repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the... Sydney, is there a track for you that you listened to early on that really kind of made you fall in love with the music? And I realize you're younger than Rodney, so you were kind of surrounded by it. And yeah. that's all you... First, probably the first music you heard. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, just something that was really formative for you. I do vividly remember going to the supermarket and being allowed to buy the Miseducation of Lauren Hill CD with my allowance and playing it back to back over and over, but, you know, stopping on certain songs. And I feel like Lost Ones was really one of those songs for me. Um, it just talked about, similar to Rodney, the tension, the fleeting nihilism, the diary aspect to it, and really just putting to words so much of the swirling emotions I felt coming up but never knew how to describe or never had the vocabulary of for myself. All right, let's hear it. It's funny how money changes situation. Miscommunication lead to complication. My emancipation don't fit your equation. I was on the humble you on every station. Someone play young Lauren like she done. But remember not to game the one of the sun. Everything you did has already been done. I know all the tricks from bricks to kingstown. My ting done major king down one wrong. Now understand El Boogie, not violent. But different things test me, run to me gun. Can't take a threat to me, no one. Okay, so that was the track chosen by uh, Sydney Madden as one of the formative tracks that she loved in, in hip-hop. So why did you decide to do a season critical of hypermasculinity and misogyny in hip-hop? Well, coming off the first season where, as you said, Terry, it was all about the collision of rhyme and punishment in America, we still wanted to examine that unique and complicated relationship. And so what we did is we shifted our lens to look inward at hip-hop on the eve of what would be its 50th birthday and reconcile some of the inequalities that hip-hop has not pushed against but actually embodied in becoming this behemoth of, of industry and culture. And 
where we're at right now with who's running hip-hop, where the barometer is at with hip-hop. We talk about it a little bit in the second season, like, the girls and the gays are running things. Like, they are the culture crusaders at this point. When you think about who is creating trends, who's starting talking points, who's ending and deading old tropes and old archetypes. And we wanted to spotlight not only those people, but kind of examine everything that has come before that they need to be pushing against in the first place. Um, Rodney, were you reluctant at all to take on this theme or these themes during this season, thinking you'd get a lot of pushback from from hip-hop fans for criticizing aspects of hip-hop? Um, definitely not. I think that Sydney and I were very much on the same page about season two and the theme. And, you know, both season one and season two were very much about us taking the temperature of the culture in that moment. And when we looked around and saw what was happening and what was going on within hip-hop at that time, it was like, you know the story subject and theme for this season was basically being served to us. Um, So it was well past due, but also right on time, you know, and I'm speaking specifically about Megan Thee Stallion and Tory Lanez. That case, you know, interestingly enough, just been resolved uh, in the last few weeks. Tory Lanez got sentenced to 10 years Now, when we were conceptualizing this season, the trial hadn't even started yet, you know. But the culture, hip-hop culture specifically, was reacting really strongly to to what happened. And Megan Thee Stallion, honestly, was just taking a lot of flack, a lot of heat. And, I mean, a lot of the themes that we cover in this season were happening in real time. You know, and, and the case for, for people that aren't familiar was a, a case of Tory Lane shooting uh, Megan Thee Stallion after they had been at at a house party in, in the Hollywood Hills uh, one night. And she didn't come forward immediately. And when she did, a lot of people didn't believe her. And exactly. There were even stories exactly. that, oh, she shot herself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it was um, wild. Yeah, but finally it came to trial and, and he was sentenced. I want to talk with you about one of the first women who in hip-hop who you devote an episode to early in the season, and that's Shah Rock. And she was in the group, the Funky Four Plus One. She was the plus one. And they're really early in the history of rap. Their first recording is 1980 on Sugar Hill Records. Sugar Hill was like the first hip-hop label. And... And before we talk about what happened to her, let's hear some music. So this is That's the Joint, and we'll pick up on the part where she's rapping. She's the joint, y'all. Do do it up. The Shy Rock is going to show you how you get real rough. I'm Shy Rock, and I can't be stopped for all the fly guys. I will hit the top. Well, I can do it for the ones go weak and strong. And I can do it for the ones that are right or wrong. Well, I'm listed and they call them that's classified. I can be a nurse, and I'm qualified to talk about respect. I won't neglect my strategy is for you to see So don't turn away by what I say Cause I'm on, I'm bad when I'm talking to you Therefore, fly brothers who could do it too The party people in the place is just for you So get down, get, get, get on down I'm the plus one more and I'm going down She's the best female in this here town And everybody know that I'm golden brown And you know 
So that was the Funky Four Plus One with Shaw Rock being the plus one. So they're the first group, the first hip-hop group on Saturday Night Live. She's the first, I think she's the first, like, recorded hip-hop female. Um, why was she basically shut out? Well, one of the big things that, that ends up happening to Shaw Rock that just kind of shows how different the times are now versus then is um, really at the height of the Funky Four's success, Shaw Rock is pregnant. And the height of success for them is being the first hip-hop group to appear on Saturday Night Live. You know, they have this really big performance. A lot of, you know, a lot of their peers at the time are upset because they feel like they should have been the group that was chosen to, you know, do this big thing, bring hip-hop to the masses on Saturday Night Live. Um, the Funky Four was picked specifically because Shaw Rock was in the group. You know, this was uh, the night that Debbie Harry was hosting the show, and she was familiar with the Funky Four and really liked them because they were young and fresh, and they had Shaw Rock. You know, and she wanted to spotlight him. And uh, Shaw Rock is pregnant at the time of the performance, which a lot of people in hip hop, you know, don't find out till years later. I mean, we talked to DMC or Run DMC for this episode. He's a huge fan of Shaw Rock. He didn't know until we told him during the interview that Shaw Rock was pregnant at that time. You know, so she was hiding it at the time because she felt like it would in some way, shape, or form be uh, construed as, as detrimental to their success and everything they were doing. And when she told them after the show, that's what happened. You know, her group members did not support her, did not hold her down. And, you know, the sentiment pretty much was, man, you know, we're on the cusp here and you're messing this up right now. So there were lots of factors that went into the group splitting up. But her treatment by her group members, uh, by hip-hop culture at that time, was really uh, a huge part of, of what ended up happening and, and why her name, you know, has has not rang out in the way that it should have based on her being this pioneering, you know, first woman MC. And compare that to how pregnancy is treated now. I mean, exactly. hip-hop artists, like, show off their baby bump. It's a, it's a big thing that they're really proud of that they show in various, in various ways. Um, yeah. It's the and, thing now. It's, it's, yeah, not, it's, it's not taboo it's, anymore. Yeah. No, which is great. Um, one of the stories that you did was about how the Me Too movement basically passed by hip-hop. And to illustrate that, you tell the, the story of Kim Osario, who was like the first female editor-in-chief of The Source, which was for a time the Bible of the hip-hop movement. They sponsored their own awards, which were very important uh, awards in the world of hip-hop. Hip -hop. And she came forward and accused the magazine's owners of harassing her and discriminating against her because of her gender. And she sued the magazine and her former bosses uh, for gender discrimination, sexual harassment, hostile work environment, retaliation, and defamation. But in, in 2006, when it came to trial, the claims of hostile environment or being a victim of sexual harassment and gender discrimination were dismissed, but um, the owners were found guilty of defaming her in interviews after they fired her 
and they were convicted of firing her in retaliation. So um, what are your thoughts on the Me Too movement having passed by hip-hop? First of all, what do you mean by that? Well, it was really important for us to investigate and revisit this case because when it was actually going down in the early 2000s, the big headline news from this case was more so that Kim Osario herself as the former editor-in-chief was getting a little too close and personal with rappers. So it was kind of residually uh, defaming her in the midst of her claiming that this place that she worked that was considered the hip-hop Bible at the time was an unsafe place for women. Um, And when we say it kind of, the Me Too movement missed hip-hop, this is a case that really predates the Me Too movement if we're thinking about the the social shift that happened with the quote-unquote Me Too movement in 2015. And it could have been a moment that actually theoretically started off the Me Too movement, knowing how influential hip-hop was in the early 2000s and the reason she was not successful on the claims of workplace harassment was around the severe and pervasive standard that was just recently done away with in the state of New York. Um, And she presented, her and her lawyers presented all these examples of unsafe... um, unsavory, disgusting, icky types of of moments and events that happen in the workplace. But overall... What are we talking about? Yeah. We're talking about pornography being um, hung up on the walls. We're talking about men's own only meetings where women were not allowed, you know, like... One of the former owners of the magazine would go around and touch female staffers very inappropriately, touch bra straps, gift people Victoria's Secret underwear for holiday parties. Um, And Osario even claims that one of the owners kind of cornered her in an elevator one night and said, we could be the king and the queen of the source. Come on, what are you doing? Um, And really pressed her on that. And the other owner, he was he was aware of all these behaviors and this culture that was being set and and being allowed to rock in the magazine in the in the office. And he didn't really do anything to stop it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So after the trial, once we get to the Me Too movement years Mm -hmm. later, do you think the Me Too movement had an impact on hip hop culture and on women's ability to speak up? I don't think it did and i don't think it really has i mean there there've been many examples in the hip hop space and in the in the in the hip hop music space and the hip hop culture space where women have come forward people have come forward and it hasn't really made a seismic shift in how black women and people presenting as black women or anybody else who is not in the majority, who is not a cishet black man, is treated in these spaces. Um, There's examples of people like Drew Dixon, who told her entire story of harassment and abuse at the hands of Russell Simmons, and and other women have come out and speaking out against Russell Simmons, and it hasn't made any seismic type of shift. And it's not a one-to-one comparison. It's not a workplace... um, it's not workplace violence, um, but it is a, a comparable example to look at how Megan Thee Stallion was disbelieved by a lot of heavy hitters in hip-hop, was ridiculed, was made fun of, was residually harassed for years later, even after um, even after 
being shot at by someone who she thought was her friend, another person in the hip-hop world. Um, And it just goes to show you that even with the pendulum swings of influence and, and like, cash flow, fluidity, and just popularity of black women, black femmes, and anyone else, anyone trans in this space who's making waves culturally— the idea that they are still not believed and respected is very much present. Well, let me reintroduce you here because it's time for another break. If you're just joining us, my guests are Sydney Madden and Rodney Carmichael, hosts of the NPR hip-hop podcast, Louder Than a Riot. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air. We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter. It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations, gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place. It's also a fun peek behind the scenes. What goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air. You can subscribe by going to whyy.org slash fresh air. You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. Let's get back to my interview with Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Madden, hosts of the NPR hip-hop podcast, Louder Than a Riot. The current season is about misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia in hip-hop, and the new generation of performers who are not standing for that. The first season was about the intersection of hip-hop and mass incarceration. The title of the series, Louder Than a Riot, is a reference to Martin Luther King's quote, a riot is the language of the unheard. Um... So I want to talk with you about your own lives in hip-hop and how the music influenced you. Rodney, you have a whole episode about how you were influenced by the hyper-masculinity and misogyny in an era of hip-hop when you were growing up. Um, What was the image of masculinity you got from the music that you most loved? Well, you know, in a lot of ways it was was nuanced, uh, especially in the beginning. I'm talking mid-'80s on up from Big Daddy Kane and, and Rakim to Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, who, who were definitely an early favorite of mine. You know, for every LL Cool J you had, you know, there was um, an MC Hammer, you know, which, though he got a lot of flack at the time for his pop leanings, he liked to dance. And, you know, I was growing up in Atlanta, and dance was very much a part of our hip-hop culture down here. So, I mean, if you were a young black man growing up in the 90s and you were receiving these messages of black men being an endangered species and 
this war on drugs, which we now understand was was really a war on black people. The mass incarceration era is kind of getting ramped up. And there was an intensity, you know, the, the crack era, there was an intensity around how you present yourself as a man. And the music was reflecting that as well, you know. And a lot of my favorite rappers were hyper, hyper-masculine. And it was something that I fed off of because in a lot of ways it felt like it was something that I needed to be as well. What you was know? the image of, of hyper-masculinity that you're describing? What goes along with I that? mean, N.W.A. comes to mind. Um Luke and, and early two live crew come to mind. You know, there was there was hypersexual music. Um, N.W.A. Obviously, they pretty much pioneer uh, what becomes known as gangster rap to some, or reality rap to others, but very much street and. Um, and two, two live crew, who you mentioned, they have a song that's basically about gang rape, kind of glorifying it. Yeah, yeah, they they had a song that I, I can't say the title of on on air, but in a lot of ways, I think it does kind of introduce you, depending on your age at the time. I was I was really young uh, when this came out. It kind of introduces you to uh, to rape culture. You know what I mean? And, and I guess maybe not introduces, but it, it makes it very casual in terms of uh, how you think about sex especially if you haven't had it yet you know and everything that you're consuming at that point in time is kind of teaching you and schooling you and you know even if you had great parents at home it's really hard to to not be swayed by what you're you you know you're internalizing your culture you're internalizing the music and you know that was definitely one of the things that I was hearing how did it actually shape your behavior or did it shape your behavior you know listening to Lyrics by hypermasculine rappers, you know, or people posing as hypermasculine and rapping about guns and drugs and women and sex. And so did that shape your behavior as well as just, you know, fantasies and, you know, having those lyrics live in your head? I mean, I think it made me it made me check my sensitivity, which is probably the first thing that happens. Right. You just start to. You start to learn how to guard uh, or hold up a guard or mask your own sensitivity. And vulnerability. And vulnerability, yeah. Especially, well, both really with, with other men, but most definitely with, with women as well. Um, you know, women that you're interested in, women that you might have tender feelings for, but, you know, you, you, you might feel like it's not necessarily cool to express that too much, you know, or be too open or vulnerable about that. You know, you, you learn how to pose and mask a little bit, or at least you, you try to. Cindy, what about you? you? You grew up with a lot of the same music. How did it affect your idea of what it meant to be female? Yeah, there were messages of overt objectification, but there were also messages of being the weirdo and being successful at it. So I'm thinking like... You know, yeah, I I grew up on Trina, but I also grew up on Lauryn Hill, and I also grew up on Missy Elliott, which if you say those three names, you could think of, like, completely divergent messages and divergent paths of what those women represent in hip-hop. But to me, it was like I was on shuffle and I was listening to all those messages at the same time. So it's hard to say that I had 
one succinct and loud message about what being a black woman was courtesy of hip hop because I had all this variety and all this Well, you had women rappers. Women were (laughs) coming forward. Women were popular. So, Rodney, you you talk in your very personal episode about how being a father made you hear hip-hop differently. You wanted your son to love it like you did, but you didn't want the songs to form his image of what it meant to be a man. Um, And when he was three years old, you played him a a, a Biggie track um, and... So the the track that you mentioned that you played him in the episode is Everyday Struggle. So um, I want to play just a little bit of that. And, um, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we're going to play, um, we're going to play the beginning. So we'll hear the chorus. Right. I don't want to live no more. Sometimes I hear death knocking at my front door. I'm living every day like a hustle. Another drug and juggle. Another day, another struggle. I don't want to live no more. Sometimes I hear death knocking at my front door. Uh. I'm living every day like a hustle. Another drug and juggle. Another day, another struggle. Right. I know how it feels to wake up messed up. Pockets broke as hell, another rock to sell. Yeah. People look at you like you's the user. Selling drugs to all the losers. Mad Buddha abuser. But they don't know about the stress-filled day. Baby on the way, mad bills to pay. That's right. why you drink Tangeray. So you can reminisce and wish you wasn't living so devilish. So... <laughs> So that that is, in fact, a really catchy Biggie track. Um, why did you want to choose that track to play for your son? Because, you know, in addition to the fact that the track has a lot to do with, like, dealing drugs and having guns and stuff, it's, like, in part about death, you know, sometimes feeling like death is knocking at your door, which is a complicated concept for a three-year-old who probably doesn't know what death is yet. So can you talk about the experience of playing that for your son and what you wished for and what you didn't wish for when you played it? Well, it's, it started out much more innocently than that. My wife bought him a Biggie T-shirt, you know, which is a, a it's a picture of his first album cover, uh, Biggie's, you know, debut album cover, which for anybody familiar knows, it's a, a picture of a baby. It's supposed to be, a likeness of Biggie. It's a baby with an afro and a diaper, you know, ready to die is the album title. And um, I couldn't have my son walking around representing Biggie in this T-shirt without having any clue or idea what he was wearing. So I started playing him Juicy, which is the big commercial single off of that album. Very different kind of song. It's, you know, it's, it's Biggie kind of projecting himself into success, which obviously he, he ended up attaining before he died. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of rapper's fantasy of, you know, I'm a millionaire and I made it and I moved my family out of the projects, et cetera, et cetera, gloss and glamour. Um, but right after Biggie, the next song in the track list is Everyday Struggle. I don't know. There's something about the the sample, you know. It's, it's very catchy. You hear the melody um, playing, and yeah, he he just grew to like it. Obviously, he doesn't know what it's about, although he always asks me <laughs> what it's about. Um, yeah, it's so funny and, to think of a th- three year old wanting to sing. I don't want to live no more. <laughs> Sometimes I hear yeah, death knocking at my door. That's a lot. <laughs> he 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 doesn't know the lyrics. He does not sing along. Right, right. Um, but. I think part of that is is why I wanted to do an episode like this because I kind of I know that I want to be armed with the conversations 
to be able to have with him about how to, you know, process and ingest and still have a respect for and enjoy this culture, you know, and this music that I love, you know. And a lot of these these topics are very adult topics, but, you know, I think that it's better to start as a father thinking about that earlier than, than later, you know. I mean, hip-hop has given me a lot of things, like Sydney was saying, the gangster thing was one element, but it also gave me a love for, for being weird and being open and, you know, De La Soul and A Tribe Called Quest and groups like that were my favorite, too. And I want him to develop a relationship with the range of that experience as well, because it's, it's, it's the range of, of black folks experience in this country. You know, in talking about raising a son and wanting him to love hip hop as much as you do, but wanting him to you know, think about the lyrics and, and all of that. You talk about how, you know, hip-hop heads obsess over their daughters and protecting their daughters. And you say when right. it comes to baby girls, the patriarchy don't play. But meanwhile, the same people raise their sons to, you know, be as bad as old dad, is what you say. So yeah. um, can you talk about trying to grapple with that as a father? You know, Yeah, that double standard, man. That's That's what the season is about. I mean... Um, so my son is is four now, and that's still his favorite song. I, I'm I'm really trying to expose him to more rap. He he wants to hear B.I.G. every day. It's it's like what have I created? But my wife and I had a daughter last year, and yeah, it was during the time of making this episode and this season, and so it was impossible to not think about the way that fathers, you know, even hip hop fathers. There's so many songs I could think about where you know. We're being doting dads when we think about our daughter and, and wanting to protect them from this and wanting to make sure we don't expose them to that. And really, in a lot of ways, a lot of the things that we're doing with our sons is replicating and is going to continue to replicate the mistreatment and marginalization of women and other folks, um, queer folks especially. So I really felt like in terms of thinking about what can my contribution to this be as, you know, a guy in hip-hop for a long time? I've been a, a hip-hop writer for a long time. I'm the co-host of, of this podcast. The answer to me was pretty plain. It was like thinking about what it is that I'm giving and gifting to the next generation, you know, and I think the best way to do that is by focusing more on my son and making sure that I don't, you know, replicate all of the kind of built in uh, misogyny and sexism that kind of comes with the culture and with, you know, culture at large, because it's not just hip hop, obviously, like you said. Earlier, no, you know, most certainly not. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of the, the inspiration for for that episode, for sure. Okay, let's take another break here, and then there's other things I want to talk with you about. If you're just joining us, my guest is Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Madden, hosts of the NPR hip-hop podcast, Louder Than a Riot. We'll be right back after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. 
According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to end by asking you to choose a current or recent recording that you love, a hip-hop recording that you love, that makes you really excited about the present and future of hip-hop. Sydney, you want to start? Yes. Okay. So as we said earlier... The girlies are really running things in rap right now, the precursors to everything influential, everything popping. And one of my favorite tracks that's come out in in the last year, I think it actually came out last fall, is Tomorrow 2, which is um, by the Memphis rapper Glorilla with a feature from Cardi B. So first of all, Cardi B has been on a legendary feature run right now in the last few years and this Memphis and Bronx mashup is just such a great calling card for um, cross-cultural collaborations and showing where it can be catapulted to. It works so beautifully. The beat is sparse. It has just this like sinister piano to it. It's quotable. It's aspirational. And it's a whole mantra. I mean, like, I don't I don't care about my credit score. I could be up tomorrow, okay? I don't care what you say about me today. The sun is going to shine tomorrow. I'm good, you know? It's one of those songs that you cannot be mad at after listening to. And it's heavy in my rotation, and it will be forever. All right, let's hear it. I can't love you, baby, like your so don't leave her. He gonna choose her every time, cause it's cheaper to keep her. Can't say your name up in my songs. Might not with you tomorrow. Can't get my feelings hurt today. I won't give a tomorrow. If it's about no credit score, I might be rich as tomorrow. Every day the sun won't shine, but that's why I love tomorrow. Riding with my twin and um, and we all look good. She said she my eye, but I don't know her. I had to look her up. I know that I'm rich, but I can help it. I'm hurt as I've been on these next so long, sometimes I fucking stuck. I can put you in my business. You might wish me dead tomorrow. Be on today, sing every word of tomorrow. I still got cases open. Keep your mouth shut tomorrow. Play with me today, then get some sleep. You know it's up tomorrow. Okay, so that was Sydney Madden's pick for a song that's making her excited about the present and future of hip hop. Rodney Carmichael, your turn. Can you choose something for us? Yeah, so I'm going to pick a song from an album that dropped earlier in August. It's by the artist No Name, and the name of the song is Namesake. And I like this song because. She is calling out everybody, including herself, in terms of how they, you know, are active participants in capitalism. And when I say everybody, I'm talking about some of the top names in the business, you know, from Jay-Z and Beyonce and Rihanna, Kendrick Lamar. And, and like I said, she name checks herself, too, for, for performing at Coachella. 
But the thing about this song that I really like is it shows that hip hop can still be a countercultural force, you know, because it takes a lot to be an artist of no names caliber and um, to go against some of the biggest names in the industry and, and really going against the industry and calling the industry out um, while you're in the industry. You know, that's a hard challenge. And it really, to me, it resonates with a lot of the spirit of what hip hop was in its infancy when it really felt like this revolutionary art form. Well, let's go out with that. So before we do, I want to thank you both. Rodney Carmichael, Sidney Madden, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for the podcast, Louder Than a Riot. Thank you, Terry. Thanks so much, Terry. We really appreciate it. So Rodney Carmichael and Sidney Madden host the NPR hip hop podcast, Louder Than a Riot. And here's no name. Yo, I never need no man. I got a little bit of love and a couple of friends pitching me rolling up the bud in the South Sudan. Yo, I never need no, no, no. Yo, I never need no man. I got a little bit of love and a couple of friends pitching me rolling up the bud in the South Sudan. Yo, I never need no, no, no name. Where's you came? We can stand in the rain, maintain a good life. We can fight, maintain. Same day the air strike, strike down our rain. I ran into the house with a blunt in my hand. Let's smoke. I don't want to see death no more. Let's fight. They got the devil hiding in plain sight. That's you. That's me. The whole world is culpable. Why complacency place and see float the both the most? I don't really get it. Y'all ain't really with it. All they eat the rich. That's namesake from No Name's new album, Sundial. Rodney Carmichael and Sidney Madden host the NPR hip hop podcast, Louder Than a Riot. We have more hip-hop interviews coming up before this 50th anniversary month ends. This Wednesday, we plan to feature an interview with Justin Tinsley, author of a new book about Biggie Smalls. Next Monday, through Labor Day, we're doing a History of Hip-Hop series featuring interviews from our archive with several foundational hip-hop artists, including Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, Ice-T, Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC, Queen Latifah, De La Soul, The Beastie Boys, Andre 3000, Questlove, Jay-Z, and more. After we take a short break, our rock critic Ken Tucker will review a new album by the group Bush Tetras, which is fronted by two women. That was pretty rare when the band was founded in 1979. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Bush Tetras is a rock band that formed in 1979 in New York City at the height of the punk era, It was the rare band to be led by two women, Pat Place and Cynthia Slay. The band was known for its abrasive yet danceable sound. Now the group has released a new album called They Live in My Head, and rock critic Ken Tucker says it's as inventive and vital as anything the Bush Tetris have ever made.
1970s music scene that gave birth to this band, Bush Tetras were outsiders among outsiders. The Tetras were part of the so-called no-wave scene in New York City, a reaction to the punk and new wave bands that, rather amazingly, some found not loud or chaotic enough. Guitarist Pat Place, who'd been a member of the ultimate no-wave outfit James Chance and the Contortions, formed Bush Tetras as a deafening but danceable alternative. The Tetra's trademark song was its glorious complaint about obnoxious men called Too Many Creeps. Bush Tetras never had much commercial success, but they enjoyed enough of a following to continue releasing singles and EPs here and there, playing in various configurations, all of them organized around Pat Place, singer Cynthia Slay, and drummer Dee Pop. Pop died in 2021 at the age of 65. They Live in My Head is only Bush Tetras' fourth full-length album. Producer Steve Shelley, longtime member of second-generation noise band Sonic Youth, is playing drums. The band members are in their late 60s and early 70s, and this album is haunted by the past. That's one meaning of the phrase, they live in my head. Memories, people who've passed away. The title song starts off with an unusual quietness that ramps up quickly in sound and fury. this album with modest expectations. The Tetras had already had their moment of rediscovery a couple of years ago with the release of a career-spanning box set called Rhythm and Paranoia, The Best of Bush Tetras. For most bands, what follows after that are one or two nostalgia-laced reunions to squeeze a bit more cash out of the remaining renewed interest. Thus, the energy and force of They Live in My Head, its urgency to get some things said and make some different sounds, was a very pleasant surprise. 
At this point, I'm inclined to think that it's the best, most sustained work the Tetras have ever done. I have been born into the night, bathed in warm moonlight, bottled with scents of fragrance. I'm lost like a lover's stolen kiss, stolen kiss. So strange that things come to this. So strange that things come to this. So Strange, on which Cynthia Slay sings, How many times can we repeat the past? Well, turns out you can do it a number of times, in different ways, and make it all matter, as Bush Tetris are doing now. Ken Tucker reviewed They Live in My Head by Bush Tetris. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be the first woman to be president of Harvard, Drew Gilpin Faust. Her new memoir is about growing up in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, where she was groomed to be a proper Southern lady, which she resisted every step of the way. Her grandmother identified with the Confederacy. Faust rebelled against the norms of racism and gender inequality she grew up with and became a student activist and a civil rights and anti-war activist. She's written several books about the Civil War. I hope you'll join us. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Bodinato, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.